I'm Tom McKinnon. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, August 23rd, 2011. Coming up, a new EPA report warns that nitrogen pollution is wreaking havoc on the environment and human health, but that the crisis is solvable. And we take a look at the future of electric vehicles. begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. 500 years ago, when European explorers began crossing the Atlantic, a particular strain of wild yeast traveled back to Europe with them. It merged with the yeast that were used for making ales in the Bavarian region of Germany. The hybrid strain allowed for slower, colder fermentation, and people have been enjoying, have been enjoying lager-style beers ever since. But until now, nobody knew where that mysterious yeast came from. An international team has discovered a wild yeast dubbed Saccharomyces iubiensis, and it appears to be the long-lost parent strain of lager yeast. It was discovered in the beach, beach forests of Patagonia at the southern tip of South America. The work was published this week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Beech trees offer a sugary environment which would have made the species well adapted to the fermentation process of beer. Gene sequencing, performed at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, showed the Patagonia yeast was distinct from all other known wild yeasts. So the next time you're enjoying a cold lager, think of that yeast that traveled 7,000 miles from Patagonia to Bavaria and raise a toast to Saccharomyces iubiensis. Maybe it gets easier to pronounce with each glass of beer. Café Scientifique kicks off its new season of Geek Fest next Monday night, August 29th at 6.30, with a special program devoted to the lasting legacy of Madame Marie Curie. Curie gave birth to the whole new field of science called radioactivity when she discovered, in 1898, radium and polonium. The guest speakers are working on a film about Curie for PBS. The American Chemical Society, whose annual meeting in Denver runs from August 28th to September 1st, will co-host the event. It'll take place at the Brooklyn Sports Bar at the Pepsi Center. For more information, go to cafecicolorado.org. And finally, a quick update on the judging of our theme music contest. With the help of our expert panel, we've narrowed it down to two top entries, a track called Dancers by John Stubbs and a track called Patient Truth by Techler. Each will be featured during the music break of today's program. And you can hear the full versions at our website, howonearthradio.org contest. You can help us make the final decision by leaving a comment there or by emailing science at kgnu.org. And to all the talented musicians who participated in the contest, thank you for offering your music in support of KGNU's local community programming. You're listening to KGNU's How on Earth. I'm Susan Moran. Last week, the Environmental Protection Agency published a seminal report about a subject that is unknown to many people, but it's an enormous environmental and public health problem. In fact, some scientists put it on par with the carbon imbalance. The topic is nitrogen. It's essential for all life, including ours, but excess nitrogen in the environment is turning out to be a predicament of crisis proportions. Yesterday, I interviewed Dr. Hans Perl, 
one of the report's authors who serves on the EPA Science Advisory Board. He's a professor of marine and environmental sciences at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I started by asking Dr. Pearl about the report itself. What is so important, what's so unique about this report? Well, nitrogen, of course, is one of the uh, important elements in terms of any kind of organism in, in terms of its uh, body mass or what it takes to grow, and it's, it's a key nutrient that makes up the uh, composition of plants and animals. So it's uh, an absolutely required element, and all the active compounds that you have in your body have nitrogen in them, like proteins and nucleic acids and uh, enzymes. So it's a very essential element, but it's also one that uh, in excess can cause a variety of environmental problems, including uh, over-enrichment of our uh, waters, acidification. By over-enrichment, uh, meaning what? D too uh, Over-enrichment, meaning too much of a good thing, basically. <laughs> you know, we like to have enough nitrogen uh, on our plants and in our soils and apply to land in order to uh, yield good fertile areas and have crops to raise, but we can easily uh, go beyond the tipping point and have too much nitrogen, in which case the excess nitrogen will uh, ultimately make its way down uh, waterways and through the air into uh, receiving waters and soils where it can do quite a bit of environmental harm. So what the report does is it basically uh, assesses essentially the use of nitrogen, where it's coming from, how much it's gone up in terms of the uh, use of nitrogen for agriculture, industry, domestic use. And then this issue with the excess nitrogen, basically, in our environment, uh, either through the air or water or through soils. And by excess yeah. nitrogen, so g give a couple examples of where we're really seeing excess, where it's gone at least to a tipping point, if not beyond. Yeah, well, you know, the most important source of nitrogen, and this comes out pretty loud and clear in the report, is excess agricultural nitrogen, that is, nitrogen that's supplied to land as fertilizers. If you look at the pie chart, essentially, that uh, talks about all the applications of nitrogen and the losses of nitrogen from ecosystems, uh, agriculture looms large. It's the single largest source. Given the fact that the climate is changing and that we are seeing more extreme events, there can be events where, you know, large amounts of nitrogen that are applied to soil essentially are washed off of that soil and end up in uh, nitrogen-sensitive waterways where they can lead to uh, problems, including uh, harmful algal blooms, uh, low oxygen conditions, uh, fish kills, and general degradation of the receiving waters. So back, and back to the report, just in a snapshot, have things gotten much worse or in some cases better in terms of nitrogen pollution in the U.S.? I think both. In some cases, it's gotten worse in that uh, we have uh, large segments uh, of the country, right, you know, where high amounts of nitrogen are being applied or being emitted, and they are not going into plant growth as effectively as we would like. And as a result, we're getting more uh, runoff containing high nitrogen compounds. Probably the best example is the uh, Mississippi River and the uh, plume from Mississippi coming into the Gulf of Mexico, which has very excessive nitrogen inputs coming from a variety of sources in the Mississippi Basin. And give us a sense, when you say the Mississippi Basin, we're talking about 31 states, right? I just recently saw a map, and it's we're a huge chunk of the U.S. We're talking about of the area of the country almost. It's really very impressive. Wow. And then where things have gotten better, I do want to present the positive side here as well, is that in smaller watersheds and in, in some where nitrogen is being controlled as a result of regulations, and I point 
to North Carolina is one example, but also into Chesapeake Bay watershed and other places. Best management practices, that is applying fertilizers in a timely uh, fashion and not applying more than what's needed for plant growth, have actually um, reduced the uh, amount of nitrogen that's lost from those lands. And the other factor that goes into play there is creating buffer zones and wetlands in which nitrogen can be processed before it gets into uh, nitrogen-sensitive waters. You know, one of the blessings in the skies here is that it's getting more and more expensive to buy chemical fertilizer because oil is used to produce it. The other positive news is that, you know, we are starting to uh, treat nitrogen at sewage treatment plants in a much more aggressive and effective way uh, using what's called tertiary treatment in which urban and domestic wastewater is being treated at the plant in order to remove nitrogen and convert it back into the uh, gaseous state, the nitrogen gas, which is relatively harmless. Has there been much buy-in by growers or farmers to actually reduce some of the amount and not lose much economically? I mean, they've got a life to live, too. Well, I think there has, but again, this, is, this all depends on how much regulatory pressure there is to control nitrogen, uh, excess nitrogen loads to uh, receiving water bodies. The earlier you can deal with this in terms of your management policies, the better off you are. And we have had some really good success stories in North Carolina with large farms that have done an uh, exemplary job of applying nitrogen at agronomic rates and not exceeding that. So bottom line, is this a manageable problem? Well, it has to be a manageable problem. And the reason is that if we expect our downstream waters to continue serving us as uh, resources for drinking water, fishing, recreational use, we have to come up with viable ways to reduce the excess nitrogen input. It's really a problem that you have to really look at it on a basin-wide scale. Uh, it involves economic interests not just from the agricultural side, but from fisheries, tourism, recreation, water use, and even water supply. And, and really, what's more, what's more important than drinkable water in this world? I would argue that, uh, I, I would even argue that it's a lot more important than oil. So for some people in this, again, landlocked interior state who might feel this is kind of obscure and might wonder, how is this nitrogen problem affecting me? What do you say to them? Yeah, well, I think this is a national problem. Ultimately, it impacts resources downstream that ultimately we as citizens of this country or residents of the earth have to pay for in terms of uh, purchasing them or enjoying them or uh, even using them for uh, potable drinking water. And are you hopeful that the EPA will, and for that matter other government agencies, will take this up and, and actually apply some action to it? I think uh, it's already happening. The total maximum daily loads that are imposed by EPA on certain states now also include nitrogen. Uh, we have them right here in North Carolina. They will be uh, imposed in other places uh, over time, not too uh, far down the road, for example, Florida. Well, so that's not all doom and gloom. There is some <laughs> hopeful. Well, you have to be hopeful in this business. Um, I, I wouldn't be in it if I didn't think that it would make any difference that we are looking at nitrogen, for example, on this large scale. And uh, we put a lot of effort into the report to, uh, to make those connections and make it a very integrative issue. And indeed it is. That was Dr. Hans Pearl from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill.
You're listening to KGNU's How on Earth. I'm Tom McKinnon. A reliance on petroleum-fueled vehicles can be blamed, at least in part, for a wide range of problems we face today, from local air pollution to global warming, the balance of payment deficits to political instability on a global scale. One possible solution is to shift from a reliance on gasoline to the use of electricity for transportation. To discuss the electric vehicle issue, we have with us in the studio John Gartner. John is a senior analyst at Pike Research here in Boulder. John, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you for inviting me. Can you begin by talking a bit about uh, Pike Research's role in the electric vehicle industry? Sure, thank you. Yeah, Pike Research is a clean tech uh, marketing, market research, and consulting firm. And my specialty, I work in the transportation practice focused around electric vehicles and everything that goes in them and connects to them. And so we provide industry reports as well as consulting services to the makers, customers, and regulators who are involved in the electric vehicle industry. Okay, so one report you've done that's caught a lot of buzz has been uh, the projection of, uh, of how uh, electric vehicles will penetrate into the market. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that report? Uh, yes, uh, there's a great opportunity in front of us to um, transition from petroleum vehicles, as you said, to electrification. And we see that transition happening pretty rapidly over the next few years. Uh, I know the president has made his goal a few years ago about getting a million electric vehicles on the road by 2015. And we think uh, the industry is off to a bit of a slow start in terms of getting vehicles out there and producing enough vehicles. And so we think that uh, we're going to fall a little bit short of that goal here in the United States. Uh, we, we project a more around uh, 665,000 electric vehicles being sold between now and 2015. And we'll reach that million mark, but probably not until beginning or mid-2017. Okay. So let's talk about the short term. Um, the, the Chevy Volt and the Nissan Leaf were, were introduced with uh, quite a bit of fanfare back, I believe it was in November. Uh, but, but sales have been pretty slow so far. How come? Uh, it's really been a su supply side issue. Uh, it's not that people don't want the vehicles. There's been a long waiting list for both vehicles, and uh, the manufacturers are actually being slow to address that waiting list. And so they're starting to ramp up and ship a 1,000 or more vehicles a month now, but there's a lot of pent-up de demand. So the smaller numbers, around a little less than 5,000 vehicles each so far, it's not for want of customers. It's the fact that they're not getting the vehicles to the customers quickly enough. Mm -hmm. And uh, did the Japan earthquake uh, have uh, anything to do with that, uh, supply uh, chain uh, issues? Uh, it was a slight uh, speed bump for Nissan. Um, they've uh, adjusted pretty well and have um, moved some things around to enable to get back to where they'd like to be. So it slowed things down for a couple of months, but they're pretty much back on track now. Okay. Well, there's a lot of reasons to, to shift to electric vehicles, uh, but probably the reason that, that would motivate most buyers is the, the environmental one. Um, but are, are we just shifting the problem from the tailpipe to the, uh, to the power plant? Yeah. There actually are uh, real carbon reduction benefits when you go to an electric vehicle, depending on the part of the grid that you're connecting to, depending on the profile. Uh, coal and natural gas are not the cleanest resources to use to generate energy, but if you're in a place where there's an abundance of wind or solar or hydro energy, then the carbon footprint can be much, much smaller, up to 25% of that as if you were driving on a petroleum vehicle. And what about here in the front range where we have a blend that's roughly half coal and, and the rest of gas and so on? Yeah, you'll still see benefits. I mean, the thing is, even when you're driving on electricity, they're still efficient because one of the great benefits is that they don't burn gas when they're stopped. They don't burn anything. They don't use any electricity at that time. So if you are stuck in traffic heading downtown while you're waiting there, you're not you're not wasting anything, whereas obviously if it's a hot summer day, you're idling the engine, you're, you're using a lot more fuel. So they're actually 
energy efficient even when they are in motion, even if they are using some carbon from the grid. Okay, let's talk about the batteries. Uh, lithium batteries were, they were really the uh, enabling technology that, that made this uh, current uh, boom lit, if you want to call it that, in electric vehicles uh, take off. They're, they're pretty good, but still they're nowhere near uh, the energy that can be contained, say, in a gallon of gasoline. Um, Did you see any uh, breakthroughs around the corner, or will we be uh, living with lithium for uh, quite a while? Yeah, well, lithium is probably going to be the answer for the short term. Uh, there's going to be continued improvements. There's a lot of companies looking at this, a lot of billions of dollars of research trying to address the problem of energy density and allowing you to store more energy in the same size so that you can increase the range. Right now, the electric vehicles are somewhere between around 30 to 40 miles for a plug-in hybrid for 80, around 80 miles for a full electric vehicle. And we see that improving over time. Uh, the goal would be to get closer to 200 miles so you can get much closer to what you can get from the range of a gasoline-powered vehicle. So there will be improvements. I don't see any huge breakthrough where things are going to vastly change in two years, but I think incrementally, year over year, you're going to see the battery packs get uh, having larger and larger capacity so people can drive further. And what about the safety of the batteries? There have been some highly publicized uh, laptops with lithium batteries that uh, burst into flames, and, and I believe there have been some uh, uh, buses in China that have had problems. Uh, did you see uh, safety in batteries being a big problem? Uh, not really. I mean, the auto industry as a whole is extremely conservative uh, in what they put in their vehicles. And so the example you gave about laptops, that was an older generation chemistry. And in fact, most of the automotive companies have been really conservative with the battery partners they've chosen to really stress safety. There are some battery chemistries that are being explored that might give you more power, but a little bit less reliability. And so they've chosen to go the safe route, and we expect them to do so, uh, you know, there are problems with all kinds of vehicles at different times. It's not to say that there will never be any accident uh, regarding a battery, but generally the, the automotive industry has done its work and, and it's taken a real safe approach. Okay. Uh, arguably, the, the biggest downside to an electric vehicle is just the range. You know, as you said earlier, 30 miles, 80 miles, um, uh, that's good enough for sort of 90% of our uh, our uses, but uh, we have this, this, well, this range anxiety issue. Um, Partly that can be offset by uh, wide access to public charging stations. And, and I know you guys have done some research in, in that area. Can, can you talk about that? Sure, yes. Uh, simultaneous to the vehicles getting out there, you're now seeing the first real widespread installation of charging infrastructure. A lot of that is benefited by um, Department of Energy grants. There's a couple billion dollars that are going towards charging infrastructure all over the country, and it's happening now. It's really important to give people that psychological safety net to say, well, yes, I might buy a charger for home, but if I'm around town and if I think I might be getting close to the edge of my range, that there is going to be a place at the library, at the rec center, at the shopping mall where I can charge. And that's happening right now. It's, it's sort of a chicken and egg race between what's going to be what is going to be more of installed in the in the next year and i think uh, the charging equipment will keep up pace with the vehicles and how about here in boulder do we have public charging stations uh we actually do uh there was a ceremony last week in south boulder at the south boulder rec center where uh Two charging stations were put in right in front, and uh, I believe there's a couple at the uh, Alfalfa's restaurant uh, closer to downtown, uh, which is probably, if there's four charging stations, that might be four more than there are uh, new all-electric vehicles in, in Boulder at this moment. <laughs> well, there's one out in the parking lot right now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Um, and so... Uh 
uh, on, on paying for the electricity, there, there's some issues. You, you can't resell electricity. The Public Utilities Commission doesn't allow that. Do, do these public charging stations have a way around that? Yeah, there's a lot of creative ways, and that's pretty consistent uh, across the United States, except for Texas, which is kind of the only somewhat deregulated market where utilities can sell directly. Here, uh, they've talked about sort of an add-on for the parking time. So if you go to a parking garage that has electric vehicle charging, instead of paying 8 bucks an hour, you might pay 12 and you get your charging for free, some, some add-on premium, or you just pay for your time there. And whether or not you actually charge uh, isn't really important. So that's a way sort of around that, well, we're not selling electricity. You're selling time parked in front of one of those chargers. Okay, and that passes muster with, uh, with the Public Utilities Commissions. It hasn't been a problem so far. Yeah, no, yeah. That's, that's the way it's been. And in a lot of cases, actually, the charging will be free as well. So that's an easy way around when you just give it away. Well, one criticism of electric vehicles is that we're trading one scarce resource, petroleum, for another, the rare earth metals and or lithium. Uh, I understand you've done some uh, research in that area as well? Yeah, we don't see a real problem with uh, shortage on that front. Uh, there's actually fewer rare earth metals in lithium ion batteries than there are in nickel metal hydride uh, batteries, which are used in the hybrids today. Uh, as far as the lithium supply goes, uh, Vehicle batteries are going to be a really small percentage of the overall lithium demand. Batteries themselves, including everything that goes into laptops and cell phones, are only 25% of the lithium that's used every year. And vehicle batteries are a small fraction of that, certainly for the next five, five to seven years until you get, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of vehicles. So there's plenty of uh, very well-established and, and explored deposits in, primarily in South America and China. And so we think that there's not really going to be a, a shortage issue. And also they're starting to be the first uh, installations in place to secure uh, recycling of lithium-ion batteries as well so that uh, anything that goes in the battery can, can be taken out uh, after it's ended its life use. Okay, and what about uh, when we're all to, uh, charging up our vehicles? Uh, can our grid uh, handle all this extra load? Yeah, it's uh, on a generation basis, there's not going to be a problem with the power plants uh, keeping up with the additional electricity. Uh, any problems might be actually more on a neighborhood basis. Uh, some of the uh, transformers that are out there delivering power at the endpoint to our homes are several years old. They're really built for three homes peak use, and electric vehicles can add up to 50% of that peak usage. And so it could be that some of those transformers in older neighborhoods might get overwhelmed if you had three people on a cul-de-sac all buying electric vehicles and charging simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So it's more of the end use where you might see a little bit of contention as opposed to problems down at the power plant. Okay, John, we're, we're just about out of time. Uh, uh, could you point us to your company's website uh, where people might get some more information? Uh, sure, yes. Uh, yeah, we have um, free reports available about all of our forecasts available at pikeresearch.com. That's P-I-K-E research.com. Okay, thank you. That was John Gardner of Pike Research here in Boulder. Thanks, Tom. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran, who is also this week's producer. Our engineer is Ted Burnham. Tim, Bort Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music from Yesu Undor. Visit our website at hohowonearthradio.org. Podcasts of our shows are available there or through iTunes. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Tom McKinnon. <laughs>